Hi, you're listening to The Get, the podcast about finding and keeping great marketing leaders in B2B SaaS. I'm Erica Seidel, your host. Sydney Sloan is a scale savant. I talked with Sydney as she wrapped up her CMO role at SalesLoft. There, she played a key role in their huge scale-up. She has since joined Zoom as head of product and industry marketing. Sydney had so much insight to share that it was hard to pick out just a few highlights. I asked her how a CMO can balance getting oars in the water quickly while managing expectations that in marketing, things can take time. You'll hear about when to set achievable goals versus aspirational goals for your team. You'll also learn about how to build organizational excitement around your vision. And you'll hear about organizing your marketing team and hiring with an eye to where you want to be in 18 months. If you want to upgrade from incremental growth to transformational growth, you've come to the right place. Let's go. Sydney Sloan, it's so great to have you on the show. Thank you for joining. Thank you, Erica. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I'm glad that we have all this fun stuff to talk about and you have such great experience to share. So let's get right into it. I want to talk about CEO uh, kind of advising as pertains to CMOs first. So you have led marketing in multiple you know, situations. You've been an advisor to multiple companies. What is one piece of advice that CEOs need to hear most to have their CMO be successful in a scale up? Well, we're just going to get right into it. Yeah. Um, so, hey, I love how you do this. Like, we're <laughs> we're going to get to the, the good stuff right away. How do you work with your CEO as a CMO? Yeah. I think that's it's a great question because I think there's certain expectation setting. And I've been in all sizes of companies. I've advised like two guys in a garage to, you know, billion dollar companies. And there are certain things that I find are consistent regardless of of company size. And that is that marketing is, as we know, like right brain, left brain, science and art. And so there's two facets. It's like either they're looking for the unicorn, the person that has absolutely everything in their resume and has done absolutely everything, or they're just looking for a demand gen person or just looking for a brand person. And both of those are probably the spectrums from, you know, which to work within. And so in my experience on the scale up side, I believe that marketing is part strategy, part execution. And so when I say that, then I'm thinking of how does this person set the go-to-market strategy alongside the other leaders in the company? That's the most important thing first, because if you can decide what you're going to go after and what you're not going to go after, then you can organize the company against that. And that doesn't matter what the company size is. And I've never seen a company be more successful than three. I remember when Adobe had like, five business units, they went down to two. And that's when they hyperscaled like in 2015. Hmm. And so that power of focus is is real. So I would say, you know, really helping to understand what the strategy of the go-to-market is. And then the execution. You you actually have to have demand gen chops as as a marketer. If, if you can't create demand and create inbound activity or connect with an account-based strategy, that's a skill then you would need to learn. Right, because often there are people who come up only through one angle of marketing, you know, like whether it's demand gen, product marketing or branding. And then sometimes they'll say like, oh, but I can lead the rest. But what I'm seeing now is more companies saying, well, in order to lead something, you have to be able to challenge the people that work for you. And so people who have kind of migrated around to multiple activities within marketing will do best. 
when I was younger, I always thought I had to do every job before I could manage someone. Yeah, that that was a fallacy because basically then you're asking to micromanage. I think as you continue up in your career, then it's what's the right questions to ask Mm -hmm. versus how do I do? Mm. And you can learn that by being part of projects. I remember maybe it was eight years ago, I was leading customer marketing at Jive and I volunteered to be part of this awesome project that our president was running, Jay Larson, and they hired McKinsey. And I had I had no right to be there, but I raised my hand and said, I would love to project manage this so I can get that experience of the research they were doing, how we were going after plays. There was a customer marketing angle to it, but it wasn't the whole thing. And so, you know, you, you can gain that experience even if it's not in your title. I like that. This difference between how do you do it versus what are the right questions to ask and how you can kind of rise up from being a micromanager. Yeah, I don't think you have to have done every job in order to be able to do it, but you have to understand how all the pieces fit together. And yes, what are the right metrics? So if you don't know, then ask your network, like, what are the right metrics to hold my demand gen team accountable to their return on investment? What should I expect in terms of show rates? And, you know, whatever those things are that you know you want to be in the swim lane. If you're working for a venture uh, VC backed or even PE backed, a lot of them do have like these indexes Mm. that, you know, within ranges, they're a guideline. They're not exact. I've had CEOs put the, you know, the chart in front of me. It was like a science. What did they call it? Where you have the elements, the science elements. Oh, yeah. Periodic like table of the elements kind of thing. Periodic table chart. Uh-huh. And, he, and he put it in front of me and he's like, this is what you should be doing. And I'm like, uh, uh, you know, and I looked at some of the results. and I'm like, that doesn't have anything to do with this. We're an open source developer company. Like maybe if we were something else that would. So I think you still have to be smart enough to be able to challenge. Yeah. But every, you know, those kinds of things are just guidelines and at least that you know an equation that you could look to, then you can benchmark yourself and say, am I improving? Mm, that's great. So that gets into another question I have about setting expectations with CEOs. So uh, sometimes CEOs hire CMOs and expect them to build Rome in a day, you know, and it's like, oh, I want somebody who can, you know, as one of my clients says, get the oars in the water, you know, fast and start rowing. But then sometimes I've had marketers that are, that say like, well, but this is going to take a long time. And so, Both things are true, and I'm wondering, what's your advice on how to build confidence in marketing when the reality is that some things do take, you know, a long time? I'm a planner, so I always want to know where I'm going. I remember when starting at Sales Loft, like, we ran quarterly OKRs, and so it was like, one quarter we're doing this, and one quarter we're doing that. And when you're a 100-person company, maybe you could adapt that fast, but when you grow to a 1,000-person company, your company can't shift that fast. And as a marketer, and I think this all marketers would res, was resonate with this, like you can't execute on a quarterly rhythm. You it takes a quarter to figure out what you're doing, and then a couple of quarters to execute and test it. And then, so I, I think in six month cycles. But where I like to sit is like, what is where do I want to be eighteen months from now, and create the plan for the future, not just even the twelve month your annual plan, but like look a little bit beyond that and say, Here, here's where I think we can be in 18 months. And then I look at phases. And then it's going to take us, you know, crawl, walk, run, or phase one, phase two, phase three. And so here's where we're going to start. But this is where we're going. And so if you can set a really good vision of where it is we want to go, and then here's how you get started, and identify those milestones along the way to show progress on the ultimate goal, you know, that's that's how I think of it. I remember one time that I was at Alfresco. I got, I got there, and I think I was there for maybe three months, and sales kickoff was coming. And so, you know, our team worked really hard on, you know, here's what we're going to do. Here's I had two campaigns and here's our go to market. And 
this is the we're going to run a competitive campaign and then these are the verticals we're going to go after and we're going to do this one and we're going to do this one next. And I did not set proper expectations on Q1. We're going to do this. Q3 is when you can expect that. So as soon as sales kickoff was over, everybody was like, well, where is it? You, you said it was going to happen. Like, why aren't you executing on it? And it took us longer to get the campaigns together and in market. We just bought Marketo. We didn't have a database. I mean, we had a lot of work to do. And so, you know, make sure that when you're casting these great visions of the future that you are setting expectations on on timing. Because if you do a really good job at it, people are going to want it the next day. So just right. be careful. And it sounds kind of obvious to, to set the future goal and then work backwards and, and communicate. Why do you think it is that some marketers get tripped up in that? Um, well, you have to have the conviction. I mean, sometimes it's hard, right? Because you want to test and test and test. Um, and so uh, make sure that the... The vision that you're setting is high enough that there's multiple tacks to get there mm. um, and multiple plays that you could run to ultimately get there, but that you you have this this big vision that you can rally people towards mm. and fail fast, I would say, too. Like, don't get hung up on it. Like, you know, these are all learnings. OK, we learned that's not the way. Then then we can try option B or, you know, we'll pivot here. We'll dial this. So, like I said, when I've seen companies set multiple strategies Regardless of the size, it's like three, maybe even two that matter. So if you have like three strategies and one really hits it, then that's okay. You know, you can say, well, we learned on this side, this strategy one is growing 50%. Strategy two is growing 5%. Mm. We, we all agree that those were the right strategies, but let's drop the 5%, put more in the 50% and get it to grow at 100. Mm. So placing a couple bets towards that vision, it might be a way that, you know, marketers and, and CMOs can manage with their counterparts as to how do we get there. Yeah, that makes sense. So let's talk about the CMO side now that we've talked about the CEO side. Can you share a few key mistakes for a SaaS marketing leader to avoid when they are scaling up? Well, the the first one, I think it just it drifts off of what we just said, which is pivoting too fast. Right. Like if you've done the research, if you've done the work, I remember I did this course, Pragmatic Marketing, years and years ago. And it was an engine. It was actually a product planning and engineering. It wasn't a marketing one. I went with our head of engineering to this to this course. And they were like, the most important phase is the first phase of research. So you really do understand what not to do versus trying five things. So if you tried five things, you put 20 percent effort into it, three of them fail. Why not try and cut two or three out and put more effort in the ones that statistically, if you've done your research properly, have have better chance of of succeeding. So I think I think that's it. Like if you if you really do assess your market opportunities properly, then make sure that you take the time to to work it through. And maybe the first time out it doesn't work. Maybe you too too early in market. You know, maybe there's a little bit more education that needs to be done. Uh, maybe there was a piece of the operational execution engine that didn't kind of get its piece in order, and you need to go back and fix it. So I, I just would say don't pivot too quickly when you've done the research on a strategy. The second one I think is super important and is to align with your CFO. Pronto, right out of the gate, right? You've, you've, got, you've got your leadership team and you want to have all those relationships and your head of sales absolutely is a strong relationship, head of product as well. But don't forget the CFO for many reasons. Matt Hines that dropped the greatest knowledge bomb a couple <laughs> weeks ago in the CMO group I'm in. And he said, the marketing budget is not an expense budget. You're buying outcomes. He probably said it more eloquently than that. But you, the purpose of the marketing budget is to buy outcomes. 
And if you are in partnership with your CFO over what outcomes you want to achieve and what's the right investment strategy to get those outcomes and you partner with your CFO, that is going to build that trust layer that's going to help you make those bigger bets later on. And I remember um, coming into to Sales Loft, and this was an important conversation. And uh, as, as, um, as I was leaving Sales Loft, because I've left now, he reflected, my CFO reflected on the importance of that conversation when we first started. And I sat down and I, I told him like how much I care about fiscal responsibility. Like I balance my checkbook every month. I don't have credit card debt. I pay, you know, like I'm, I'm like, I want him to trust me. And my goal was to be with plus or minus 5% of my targets, just like sales has to be with their targets. You know, my commitment to him was that I believe that I have the fiduciary responsibility of how the marketing budget is spent and I'm going to do it wisely. And there are many times we had extra money that I said, you know what, I'm not, I don't want this money because I don't think we can spend it in an effective way. And that's important to build trust too. And so, you know, we would run, we had a monthly check-in with our controller and my finance business partner, building models, looking at things. I would explain why we're investing in certain things and what my expected outcomes were being, you know, and we educated each other. And it was, it was the healthiest relationship I've ever had to the point where maybe six months ago, we were going through a big brand project and we did a Shark Tank investment. We wanted to really build the brand, this beautiful brand that we had just created and, you know, put extra emphasis in the market. And we wanted another million dollars to, to spend on advertising just for brand. So it wasn't going to be a demand investment. It was just a brand investment. And so we created this whole Shark Tank pitch for the team and uh, they they gave us the money and it worked it, it, it better than it worked very well um, to the point where we've, we've continued to get where we continue to get more. That wouldn't have happened. I don't think if we wouldn't have consistently performed, had had built that trust that, that was there. That's great. There was another um, person on this podcast, Justin Steinman, who uh, talked about with a marketing budget, like you never say it's my marketing budget, you say it's our marketing budget. And so he says like he's the steward of the budget that is the company's budget, which I, I, th I think that's just exactly aligns great to what you were saying. That's, that's the, I, I say the steward. Too. Yeah, the yeah, the steward. Yeah, yeah, it's it's great. Yeah. So you said you had three. Like, was there was there another one floating oh, around Oh, the third brain? one is partnerships. And, you know, sometimes you come in and you go, oh, the marketing team, my marketing team. And I think as a CMO, your job is actually to be uh, a leader of the company and the function you run is marketing and you hire great people to do, you know, to, to lead the, the different teams. But if you spend time with your sales leader, your product leader, making sure that those groups are aligned, then that's going to make it easier for all your teams. And when that doesn't happen, you can feel it right away. Like when there's tension that, uh oh, that means the leaders aren't aligned. If we're aligned, then everybody else should you know, should also be aligned. So it, it really is what I call team one and um, and team one is your peers. And so if you're if you're a C-level executive, you, your first job is a leader of the company and not a, the leader of marketing. Yeah. And it, hopefully if your peers feel the same way and you have that trust, then you can have open, open dialogues about the right strategy and the different pieces of the organization that, you know, may need focus or help and I mean, there's so many examples I can think of where it's like, oh, I remember just recently, you know, the SDR team, so we have like five of them, was not performing as well. And I'm like, how about if we get some training? Like, I'll pay for it. I just shouldn't have to, the sales enablement team. But but if that's going to help, like, fine, I'll do it. I'll take money and I'll, I'll pay for it because that's important for that part of our equation to function. Mm -hmm. 
And so I did. I took 20K and one of our product marketers, and they ran the project with John Barrows. And it was awesome. They were so appreciative and, you know, invited us to attend. And, you know, that's part of building partnerships is is giving support when needed. That's really that's really cool. I like that. And it makes me think about the trend that I'm seeing of of people thinking about sales and marketing as one, you know, go to market function. And so is that a trend that you're seeing? And if so, is that different than marketing being in alignment with sales and, and you know, obviously other functions as well? Well, it's a, it's a great question because I think there's a lot of talk about revenue teams right. and the revenue organization and where do the operations people sit? And so everybody nods their head. Yes, absolutely. Revenue alignment. Would you have the CMO report to sales? Absolutely not. <laughs> no, no way. I'm not going to report to sales. Then I'll just be, you know, a demand gen engine. Yeah. And so I, you know, I think there's a, there's, you have to keep that healthy tension between investing in the brand and demand and aligning on the strategy if you're a true market leader, not marketing, but market leader. Mm. And so I do think that looking at holistically the customer experience through the lens of the operational side of of revenue makes a lot of sense, like shared dashboards, common nomenclature, one pipeline meeting where everybody is at the table. It's not marketing saying this and SDR saying this and sales saying this. Like we're all together looking at the pipeline creation and upsell, cross-sell. And and so bringing those folks together. So, you know, I think it's a, a revenue process, revenue engines, but I don't see very often the CMO or the head of marketing reporting to head of sales. Yeah. Sometimes the president might have it, but then they're almost like a quasi CEO at that point. Yeah, I'm seeing some CMOs report to CROs, um, but hopefully those are people that are not that, you know, yeah, they're kind of like a GM um, as opposed to just a, a salesperson that's called a revenue like officer. Right. Can we talk about goals? And, uh, you know, you had this framework around, you know, the achievable goal versus the aspirational goal, because I imagine when you're a CMO in scale up mode, you want to be able to set achievable goals so you don't overpromise and underdeliver. But at the same time, you might want to be aspirational for your team so that like setting these aggressive goals that they can kind of reach for, even if you know you're not going to get to them. How how do you think about that? You know, I think there's a time and place for each or even a mix. I subscribe to the OKR system. So I think that's a really strong framework to allow for kind of top level goals, but still organic um, goals to come from within the organization. And and they do use this framework of aspirational um, versus a- achievable. And I think there's another one that starts with a C. What I see on, if you go to aspirational, if it doesn't feel achievable, then it's not worth writing down. It's just not, right? And and so I've, you know, there's so many times where like, well, my BHAG is yeah. this. And I think you can have that from time to time, but it can't be every quarter. It can't be every goal. Like, if you want to pick one to like say, hey, this, because if we do this really well, like this is what we expect. So you might have a couple that are that are truly aspirational. I think the purpose of aspirational goals is to really remove the barriers of what you're doing now to think differently about how you might achieve it versus incremental growth where you want to do transformational growth. That might be the time that you you throw down an aspirational goal, but you allow your team the space to realize, you know, that that it was an aspirational goal. I find with with type A's, if you put an aspirational goal down, they're still going to go for it. And if they don't, 
crush it, then they're going to feel defeated. So you have to be really careful that it doesn't become a demotivating factor when you set aspirational goals because they're unachievable mm. or that people are like, I can't even get that. Like, why bother? Like if if you've got people with with quotas that you know are so huge that they don't see a path to it, they're not going to be motivated to meet it. So I think that's a good example of achievable goal where you allow them to overachieve and maybe you change your comp plans allowing for overachievement if that's what's necessary to get the momentum going in the organization. Or if you're doing a, a new product group or a new team, like let them achieve the goals and get that momentum of success versus some crazy BHAG that, you know, your financial model tells you, but your gut tells you, your financial model tells you you need, but your gut tells you it's not the right thing. Now you talked about bonuses and motivating people financially. Are you starting to see marketers getting compensated more like salespeople with higher variable compensations? It's something I've been starting to see like in pockets, you know, here and there. I have not. I mean, I've, I see the CMOs like, you know, we're responsible for company revenue. I see company metrics where the revenue achievement is part of the overall bonus yeah. structure. Mm -hmm. Like, so it's like, do we meet our revenue goals? Do we meet our our churn and retention goals, if it's net or gross, and then like some operational efficiency, you know, target. That's that's pretty common. I actually was on a thread today on LinkedIn. Um, Carrie Lou Dietrich uh, started on compensating SDRs. I think that's that's one that's a little bit different. <laughs> where you have so many different kinds of SDR teams. You can have an inbound team. You can have an outbound team. You can have a hybrid blended team. You know, supporting. SMB versus enterprise. So there, there's no one size fits all when it comes to SDRs and BDRs. But there is this idea of quality over quantity. And, and I see that where if they're creating all these SQLs, but they're not converting, should they still get paid? Right. I, I don't think so. I think it does have to be a quality and quantity. The quantity is proof to the formula. The quality is proof to the person's ability to properly qualify and the sales rep, right? It's a responsibility between both of them. And so I, I do like giving that second kind of mix on the variable to quality. Now, does that mean they get paid on closed one? Well, it depends on the timing of the sales cycle. Maybe they get they get paid when it hits another sales stage where it's further qualified and that's good enough and it's a little bit quicker. So they see the compensation coming back to them and they stay motivated in their job. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. I haven't seen that, though, in other places, like advertising, return on investment or anything like that. So I haven't seen that yet. Okay. Interesting. So let's dive in deeper on org and hiring. Um, I'm wondering if in all your experience, you have made an organizational choice that most other marketers haven't done or wouldn't do, like a really unique organizational choice. So I like to design org charts. Same thing. You'll see the same 18 months out. Yeah. So it's like, what am I designing for in the future? And then what is my revenue target at that point? So what does a $250 million marketing organization look like versus a $50 million organization? If you're growing that fast, like I think it's like 100 to 250. But, you know, they absolutely change and adapt and like people's skills and experience have to change. That's the hardest part of the job, right, is making sure you've got the right people in the right roles with the right experience or that you can teach them to do that. And I think you know, when I first arrived and we were 15 million, that was the smallest company I'd worked for since I was right out of college. That's different because you're working with a lot of people that are first time in job. I looked at my management team. I'm like, everybody that is on my management team, this is the first time them ever doing any of their jobs before. Wow. Okay. You know, so how do I manage those folks and how do I, how can I give direction, you know, give training and enablement, still hire and balance where there's people that are being promoted while you're hiring in more experienced talent. 
you know, and that that equation continues as as the company continues to grow. During those periods, I have people report to me for different reasons. Um, sometimes I've had field marketing directly report to me, but the reason is, is because I wanted to stay close to what was happening in the field. And if they had been reporting to the head of demand gen, I wouldn't be hearing kind of first party insights on, okay, what are the sales teams saying? How are they executing? How are they feeling about the sales plays? What else are they asking for? And so that, that was the reason that I, at that point, put field marketing reporting to me. Um, recently, I had customer marketing reporting to me, um, and she had analyst relations and customer marketing. It's the same thing. It was like, I wanted to have direct insight, and I believed I could help coach this really talented person to, um, Sunshine, I'm talking about you if you're listening, um, <laughs> this really talented person to stretch into a new role. And, and I told her at some point, you'll likely go into the comms, and that did happen. Mm-hmm. But for this period of time, you know, let's do this. And I think when you're looking at your leadership team, it doesn't always have to be your direct reports. And so if you have emerging talent or people inside the team that are taking on special projects, let them be part of your leadership team. Give them that exposure to how you lead and manage and start cultivating them as a future leader if you see them in that in that hiring path. So that might be other time, too. It's like, well, why is that person going to your leadership team? It's like, oh, because that, that person's a future leader. And I want them to learn what's going on here. So when when it's time for them to be promoted, or if I'm kind of getting a backup person just in case, or if I have my plan, like I'm going to expand this team and this person's going to come out into a new role, then I want them to understand what it's like to be a leader, the kinds of challenges we're faced with, how we run our business, you know, give them opportunities to take on new projects that are cross-functional. That's not necessarily org structure difference, but it's how you run the team different. Is there a particularly risky bet that you have made on a hire in the past? And maybe it's somebody without SaaS background coming into SaaS or hiring a B2C marketer into B2B or hiring a totally different function, you know, to come in and run product marketing or, you know. You know, I've, I've hired people outside of SaaS. Our company, SalesSoft, was based in Atlanta, so it just didn't have the same pool of talent to pull from. And so, you know, we were pulling people out of consumer, but for, for they were smart choices, like, you know, advertising brand, mm-hmm. demand gen, like not like the core strategy uh, pieces. But I remember I hired an engineer at a GE who had been, a, you know, a hardware product marketer before. And he's awesome. He had, he had really good super skills in project management and he understood product launches. So I think you can absolutely do that. I also think that finding talent within your organization and bringing them in. So I've hired from recruiting. I've hired, I've hired every chief of staff that we ever had. I love office managers. They're great field marketers mm-hmm. because they're organized and they're people, you know, they, they work well with people and they, um, you know, they know how to plan events. And so I think there's some really easy uh, talent pools inside the organization to pull from. I think the one piece of advice I would give here that I learned was a couple of times where I felt really strongly about a candidate that had yellow flags in the interview process. And so, you know, sometimes I've taken the risk on that and learned my lesson. And sometimes I've taken the risk and it ended up being perfectly fine. And the advice that I got was if people raise a yellow flag and you still feel strongly, you have to go back to that person, acknowledge the yellow flag. When you're doing your background checks, address that with you know, as many people as you can talk to and learn, and then be very clear with the candidate, hey, this was a yellow flag. This is something we're going to work on. And before you hire them, get agreement that, yes, that is something they want to work on. And you start, you know, it's almost like you're working on your development plan as they're coming in. 
and and helping them continue to work through that. You know, if, if you feel strongly, you could take that risk, but just be, you know, make sure everybody is aware. My last question for you is um, one I ask, uh, I think, almost everybody, and that is, do you have a favorite interview question? So something that you like to ask that is really surprisingly revealing. Kyle Porter asked me this question one time, and so it's become my favorite my favorite question, which is, what is the one thing that you hold true that others would challenge you on? Oh, And, you know, it's a deep thinker. You have to like, that's a level three, <laughs> we call it, you know, like, that's a level three question. And and so I, I asked that one from time to time. Um, but what I would highlight is this notion of top grading as an interview style. Mm-hmm. And, and so rather than a question, I think it's more of a method. And what I love about the top grade process is you really learn about the person and their journey, not the, not the jobs and the accomplishments, but how they work how they work with people, how they make decisions, looking for patterns, who who influence them in their life. And so if you're not familiar with Top Grade, look it up, read it, try it. You know, send me a message on on LinkedIn if you'd like a little coaching. It's it's an amazing way to do a really deep dive and it takes a while. So it's an hour, hour and a half long interview depending on how long the person's career path is. But that's super insightful. And you learn a lot about the person. Yeah, I once did a, uh, a Top Grading interview for a company. I did not get the job. But it entailed flying from Boston to Philly, going to the airport like Hilton and sitting in a room with somebody. And it was like an like maybe a six hour interview. I think mine was three. I think we had to take a break and come back. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm a talker. You know, it's like, oh, you want to know about that? (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, if if you've been to I mean, I would say it's an hour per 10 years of experience. Right. right? Like at least depending on how deep they want to go. I think if you're a good interviewer, once you see a pattern, you, you can kindly move them on. So I learned, you know, you don't have to make it that long. Well, Sydney, thank you so much. This has been fabulous. I've learned so much, and I think the uh, the listeners will too. So thank you. It's been my pleasure, Erica. Thank you for having me. Happy 22. That was Sydney Sloan sharing lots of do's and don'ts about how to scale in a transformational way, not just an incremental way. Now that you've listened, ask yourself, how can you be not just a marketing leader, but a true market leader? Thanks for listening to The Get. I'm your host, Erica Seidel. Hiring great marketing leaders is not easy. The Get is designed to inspire smart decisions around recruiting and leadership in B2B SaaS marketing. We explore the trends, tribulations, and triumphs of today's top marketing leaders in B2B SaaS. This season's theme is solving for the scale journey. If you liked this episode, please share it. For other insights on recruiting great marketing leaders, what I call the make money marketing leaders rather than the make it pretty ones, follow me on LinkedIn. You can also sign up for my newsletter at theconnectivegood.com. The Get is produced by Evo Terra and Simpler Media Productions.